I'm right and you're wrong. Once you start labeling people, categorizing of humans and ideas, you have desensitized yourself to the humanity of that other human being, to who they really are. And in the marketplace of ideas, these things are complicated, man. We all need to engage with a variety of viewpoints. A genuine multicultural connection with another. I mean, sometimes you don't need to agree or disagree. You just need to sit with it and digest. Welcome back, everybody, to Ideas Digest, the live podcast practice where we explore the challenging ideas that divide us in order to find the humanity that I believe connects us all. My name's Conrad, and if you're new to the show, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thanks for checking us out in the podcast land. Uh, But I'll be honest, as I always am, this podcast might not be for you. Now, it might be, but it might not be, and that's okay. Uh, as a friend of the show, you're probably very familiar with this spiel, and, and here I go again. We, we take the claim here at Ida's Digest, we take the claim of being open-minded seriously. Uh, and on the journey to having an open mind, it's only a matter of time before we step outside our cozy little echo chamber, our little social media filter bubbles, and, and eventually it'll bring us into contact with ideas that, that trigger us and that we might strongly disagree with. So... In our daily life, we like to avoid opinions and people we disagree with, uh, but here on Ideas Digest, we actually seek it out. So I'll be honest, it will be challenging, but if you stick with it, I think you'll learn to love it. With the disclaimer out of the way, podcast might not be for you if you're not ready to hear ideas you disagree with. And if hearing ideas you agree with, well, it's easy. Wait for the next episode and hopefully that one will, that one will get you. Uh, let's go to the clickbait. Now, we found a new rabbit hole here and we're diving deep. It's above my pay grade. But I don't know, we're going, we're going in. Here we go. Clickbait, and I'm clickbaiting here, so my guest can correct the, the clickbait. Feminists and liberals empower radical Islam. Is that in context? Is it not out of context? Let's find out. Clickbait's just the beginning. Let me I- introduce new friend of the show, Yasmeen Muhammad. Have I got the pronunciation correct? You have it 99% correct. <laughs> <laughs> correct me. Well, the thing is, is you're pronouncing my name correctly, which is Yasmin, but um, oh, Yasmin, I would have said Yasmin if I was going for Australian. Thank or you. Yasmin. That's what I want. That's how I pronounce my. I mispronounce oh. my own name. I like to hear it mispronounced. Rhymes with Jasmine. Oh, yeah. cool. Yasmin. Oh, great. I would have gone straight with Yasmin, but I was trying to be fancy. Yasmin. No, no you got it. Yasmin. Yeah. Go with your gut. Okay, fantastic. Fantastic. So it's great to have you on the show. Thanks thanks for taking the time to join Ideas Digest. Yeah, my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I my first assumption off the bat, uh, we've just met. I believe you are Canadian, is that correct? Correct. Now, I've been to Canada a few times. And if, if we were to meet, you know, we've never met before. We're both outside Timmy Hortons. And we're getting some Tim's bits, some Timmy's bits. You know, and Just and we run bits. into each other. Tim bits. That's right. That's right. It's not Timmy's bits, everybody. Not Timmy's bits. Tim bits. If we run into each Timmy's other, Timmy's like, bits oh. is something else. That's a different show. <laughs> That's a different Canadian thing. Um, if we run into each other, and I say, "Oh, my name's Conrad Yasmin. Oh, it's nice to meet you. How would you introduce yourself? What do you do? What's this surface level introduction?" Uh, I would say that. Well, I would tell you the university that I teach for, possibly, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and tell you that I am a mom. I don't know. Do you want yep. to know what my Yasmin Muhammad person would say when we're not at Timmy's, but when we're on Twitter? We, 
<laughs> yes, sure. Yeah, go with Twitter. I I'm have... like, oh, I've seen you on Twitter. Yeah, because I, I do have, you know, I'm, I'm leading parallel lives. So as Yasmin Mohammed, um, I am a human rights, specifically women's rights activist, supporting um, all people, but again, specifically women who are living in the Middle East and North Africa, South Asia, Muslim majority countries where they are subject to the laws of Sharia, which always subjugate women and uh, relegate them to uh, second class citizens. And so a lot of women in those countries are fighting really, really hard, and they're looking for support from the Western world. And I empathize with them, of course, because that was my experience. And so that's where I put my energy. Mm -hmm. Thank you for both introductions. I feel like I've gotten a, a rough idea, which, Yasmin, I'll be honest, enough information for me to judge you. I've been judging, sitting back. I've got some assumptions. Could you help me? I'm going to put them to you and you can correct them where they're wrong. Uh, friends of the show love to hear this in a yes and no. So if you can keep it to a yes and no, that's okay. great. If you have to add, that's okay as well. But they do like it when, when I force people into these two little boxes, which often never fit properly. But I guess that's the point. How does that sound? That sounds great. Yeah, this is fun. Oh, okay. First one, I feel like this one has already been, it's the slow, this is a softball for you. You guys play baseball in Canada, so mm -hmm. a slow yes, pitch, yes. Uh, <laughs> something, yeah. a slow ball. I understand ball. the context. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, you are. You must be. You're Canadian. You've got to be a friendly Canadian because there's only friendly Canadians. Uh, yes, I'm a friendly Canadian. Not all of Canadians course. are friendly. Really, I've, I've I'm yet to come across a rude one, but I guess I haven't been there long enough. But yes, okay. Uh, now, Yasmin Muhammad, with my butchered Australian reading there, the name might give it away. Muhammad, you must be Muslim. Yeah. Um, I grew up Muslim, so no, I'm not. Okay. No. Now, that leads me to the next one. I set it up perfectly. You must be, and as I've done some research and homework, Sam Harris, you're semi-associated with Sam Harris, so you must be an angry atheist. <laughs> No. No. Okay. Uh, and this one I pulled from your Twitter. Um, you hate Muslims. Oh, no. I, I think I saw it. That's a, that's a nice, nicely ripped out of context from one of your tweets there. So um, I, you, you may have got that. I don't know, but we'll get into that. Okay. Now this one, once again, as I'm doing my homework on oh, Yasmin, like who is this person? I noticed you did an interview with Dave Rubin. Now I'm connecting dots and making assumptions here. Dave Rubin, pretty right wing. Progressive listeners on the show might be like, oh, she's got to be some right winger pro-Trump person if she's, you know, on a, on a show like Dave Rubin's. Yes or no? No. No. Oh, damn it. Okay. So a lot of no's there and you play that game quite easily. Uh, what, what assumptions, I suppose, have I hit any that you get or are there ones I'm missing that you commonly get? All the above. Oh, um, good. You've, yes. You've hit I like all when I'm on track. I all of those all the time. Yeah. Um, I think that it, it's really, we're living in a world right now where group identity is the norm. You know, people just expect if you're white, you are racist. If you are black, you are progressive. 
Um, if you're Arab, you are Muslim. So they are attaching people's, uh, you know, their minds, their, their thoughts, their feelings, their opinions, their political affiliations to immutable characteristics like their skin color, which is, in my view, I, I can't imagine what could possibly be more racist. I mean, that's what we're talking about. Let's go back in time. And, you know, this is what we were talking about in the 60s. This is what Martin Luther King was talking about when he said, judge people by the content of the character, their character, not the color of their skin. But that's what we're doing today gleefully. <laughs> we're doing it as if it's fully acceptable to do that. Um and of course, it's not, you know, <clears throat> one person who I disagree with probably everything that she says, but I completely respect that she is stepping outside of her box, Candace Owens. So she's stepping outside of this identity that she is supposed to have as a black woman. Um, and she's not the only one. There's many all over the UK. And I'm sure you have in Australia as well. Um, people like me who you're born and raised in a certain um, box and, um, you are a free thinker. You are an independent thinker. You decide that mm, I want to step outside of this box and I want to find my own. I want to, I don't want to just regurgitate the thoughts that were fed to me or the ideas that were fed to me, but I want to decide for myself what my beliefs mm -hmm. are. Yeah, I think I think uh, summing up that polarization, the duality that we always like to split people into, the boxes never quite fit, and it's actually quite difficult to uh, get these categories correct as we try and squeeze people into boxes that are all too small. Which I think may or may not bring us to the clickbait that I I added something to it to try and make it a bit more uh, potent. Uh, with I added the feminists bit, but the liberals empower radicalism. That's straight. That's straight from you and the subtext to your book. I added feminists in there because I'm like, yeah, that'll that'll get some get some people. Uh, I suppose bring me to this idea of liberals and feminists, or maybe that part was added and it's not that. But liberals empowering radicalism. What unpack this idea for me? What like what do you mean empower? So. You know, if the title were to be exactly how I meant it, it would say some liberals unintentionally empower radical Islam. <laughs> I but like course, the nuanced clickbait. That's good. Yeah. But, you know, like that's... Doesn't that's sell as well. <laughs> yeah. So the, the... And if you read my book, you'll find that that's... You know, I'm coming as a person who was raised right wing. I was raised very conservative. I was raised with these incredibly conservative ideas that would make conservative people in America look like Bernie Sanders. So when people like me flee from these conservative right-wing, far right-wing ideas, and we move toward the left, toward humanism, towards liberalism, towards democracy, um, towards free thought, towards enlightenment, you have this, now I'm recognizing an unrealistic expectation that the people over there are going to be your allies because you share the same values as them. 
Um, but it turns out that because of what we spoke about earlier with the group identities, even though we share the same values, so let's take feminists, for example, feminists are against modesty culture for themselves. They're against purity culture. They are um, talking about free the nipple, having slut walks, talking about victim blaming, talking about rape culture, all of the stuff that I'm like, yes, yes, I agree with you. I'm with you totally at 100%. Now let's talk about those things in my context. <laughs> let's talk about the rape culture. Let's talk about the hijab, for example, and how that perpetuates rape culture. But no, now all of a sudden they find themselves, you know, it, it's this, this, space of cognitive dissonance where they're like, ah, well, mm, hijab is feminist and empowering and let's put it on the cover of magazines and let's put it on Barbie's head and let's put a Nike swoosh on it and let's support it. And like, what, 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 what just happened? What just happened? I, we were on the same page. We were agreeing with victim blaming. We were agreeing with slut shaming, but somehow when it comes from the Islamic context, they can't see it anymore. They just, their, their minds go blank and they suddenly start supporting the exact opposite of what they were just speaking up against, like what just happened. So that's the, the dilemma that I find myself in. And that's the, what I mean when I say how Western liberals empower radical Islam is because when they do things like that, they are standing side by side, toe to toe, shoulder to shoulder with the fundamentalist Muslims, with the radicalized Muslims, with the extremist Muslims. They are also the ones that are supporting hijab, right? Your free thinking Muslims, your liberal Muslims, your moderate Muslims, your feminist Muslims, they're fighting against it. These are women that are in prison in Saudi Arabia. They were in prison in Iran. They are getting acid thrown in their faces. They are being killed in many countries across the world fighting against this tool of misogyny. And so when you support it, you are supporting the people that oppress these free-thinking feminist women. Mm -hmm. So your position then, this this idea when it says, when, when you're talking about liberals, and I suppose liberals in the West, when you say they support these things, it sounds like you're saying we're all on board with feminism, and we're all in bo on board with empowerment, but you seem to be calling out what, seem, what you seem to be saying is a complete blind spot that says all of these oppressive things in your call for inclusion, in your call for acceptance of others, it sounds like they've included oppression in that acceptance when they don't stand against the hijab, when they don't stand against or call out uh, oppression and abuse that's occurring in some of these Muslim countries. Is, does that sound about Perfectly right? Stated. And just just to be specific there for people listening, when you say they and, and loosely using the term liberals, how specific can we get with your critique as to who is doing this? You mentioned before some liberals unintentionally do this. Who is the, who is the they in this? Is it just in the Twitter sphere? Is it in policy? What exactly are we talking about? I think it's in the Twitter sphere and it's in policy and it comes from the basic misunderstanding of, of not understanding the difference between culture and religion. So if you want to support Somali women, Egyptian women, Afghani women, um, 
Indonesian women, go ahead and do that, please. You want to support Muslims from all of those different cultural groups, go ahead. But do not support an ideology. That's the difference. See, they will support black people, but they're not going to support Nation of Islam. Do you know what I'm saying? You're going to support a Chinese person, but you're not going to support the Chinese Communist Party. You, you, they have, um, for the first time, chosen that they're not only going to support people for their identity, for who they are and how they were born, but they're also going to be supporting an ideology. I don't think that they get that. I don't think that they understand that there are over 50 Muslim-majority countries, and they do not share a culture. They do not share a religion, or sorry, they do share a religion. They do not share a language. They do not share food. They do not share anything. They don't. Sh- it's like saying, meeting a Catholic person from Mexico and a Catholic person from Italy and a Catholic person from Canada. Sure, they follow the same religion, but they have completely different cultures. And so what happens with these, you know, some liberals is that they think that they're supporting human beings, but in fact, they are supporting an ideology that oppresses human beings. Mm-hmm. And in this in this context, and we'll probably get into this a bit more specifically in a little bit, you're talking about the ideology they're supporting. Is that the religion? Is the religion itself the ideology you're talking about? Or is it a particular expression of that religion how how broad is the brush that you're speaking of well there's the religion of islam which is the doctrine and then there are muslim people so the doctrine is you know black and white words on a paper just like with the bible or the torah or anything else sure Mm -hmm. you can interpret it in different ways and follow it in different ways and that's what muslims do Mm -hmm. so there are about two billion muslims it's a huge spectrum you've got Mm -hmm. everything from the you know, someone like Majid Nawaz, who is, you know, a liberal thinker. Uh, he fights against anti-Semitism. He supports LGBT equality all the way to the other side of the spectrum where you'll find ISIS, the Taliban, Boko Haram, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So Muslims will choose in the same way that Christians and Jewish people choose to follow their religion um, you know, if you're Christian, you want to, if you're West World Baptist Church, you're going to say, I'm going to follow this verbatim. But if you're mm-hmm. united, you're then you're, you're not going to be following it verbatim. So it's, it's in the mm-hmm. same way. Um, there is the religion, there is the book, there is the doctrine of Islam. Mm-hmm. And then there is the way that people practice it. Two separate mm-hmm. things. And I suppose what percentage of Muslims would practice it in an oppressive way at a, at a guess or yeah. Well, we don't, the majority, the absolute majority. So if you look at the Muslim majority world, like if you look at countries that are under Sharia, like Saudi Arabia or Iran, you will find um, like in Saudi Arabia, the vast majority of people there like let's uh, use something like, let's say their laws say that if you are gay, you should be executed. If you leave Islam, you should be executed. Um, Women are not allowed to 
be independent human beings. They have to always be under the guardianship of a male, usually their father or their husband, but in some cases it could be their brother or even their son. But there has to be a man making decisions for her at all times. She can't make decisions for herself. So these are these are very top-down oppressive rules. Now, within the country itself, of course there are countless people that do not like these rules and do not want to abide by these rules. But you'll see in countries, um, you know, what happens when you fight against it? Like in Iran, 1,500 protesters were killed in one day, just mowed down in the streets. I mean, that's astronomical. We can't even imagine what that's like. People got up the next day, there were bodies in the rivers, bodies in the streets. It was like a war zone. And these were peaceful protesters. So you don't hear very much pushback from them. It seems like they're happy living under these oppressive regimes because to speak up means to risk your life. So um, it's a difficult question to answer in a context where people can't be honest. But, you know, when you are born and raised in a society where all you hear is the one narrative, whether it's in education, in media, in politics, everything, all you're ever getting is this one message. It's very, very difficult for you to think something, you know, to, to, to critically analyze what you're hearing and to think something different. Now, the internet is helping with that, Twitter, YouTube, this show right now, all sorts of things that's helping to break through and to let people see that there's different ways of seeing things, there's different perspectives, there's um, uh, different ideas, there's different beliefs, but, you know, um, it's difficult. It's really difficult. So that's why I say it's the majority, not because they were given the choice or the freedom, but because it's all they have. These are totalitarian states. Mm -hmm. And the common thread that it sounds like you're pointing at or pulling at is the thread of a particular interpretation of the Islamic religion. How, How do you, or correct that if you, if you, Well, I was just going to say that those countries follow Sharia, which is Islamic law. So they have councils, many people, many men um, that are scholars in the religion. And before they make a a law, before they say, for example, if you're gay, you should be killed. All of these men sit around with their books and they they're all lawyers. They're all educated in Sharia. they, They are all scholars in the religion. And they determine, they come up with that law from what is written in the Quran and in the Hadith. So they, um, it's not just like arbitrarily 15 Muslim majority countries just happen to murder gay people. (laughs) You know, these are, it comes from a source. It comes from the doctrine of the religion. There are many Muslims individuals that will say, I disagree with that. And of course, I don't want to abide by that. And that's fantastic. Those are wonderful people and I support them and I agree with them. But the fact of the matter is there is, there are rulings in the doctrine of the religion that support. I mean, there's arguments about how do you kill gay people? Do you burn them alive? 
Do you throw them off the top of the highest building? Do you behead them? These are the discussions that they have. Not should they be killed or should they not, but how should they be killed? So if all of these things are so specifically in the religion, um, that's why the Sharia scholars implement them into the law. But of course, having said that, I really truly believe that if there is a separation of mosque and state, so if the Muslim majority world can know secularism, I honestly and truly believe that the people themselves would not choose to follow these oppressive laws. They really wouldn't because they're no different than you or I. Talk to me about your context then. How did you end up, you said you grew up Muslim. How did you end up here pushing against, advocating for a secularization of these states, the separation of church and state, mosque and state? How did you, I guess, what's your context that you're coming from and how did you end up at this point that you are today? So for me, it was actually a bombardment um, that was totally unintentional. So I was in university and there was a course called History of Religions and it was going to focus on the three monotheistic religions. And I thought, well, hey, you know, my mom was the head of the Islamic Studies Department at the Islamic School. She's a student of Al-Azhar University. As her daughter, I had to know the religion inside out because it would be an embarrassment to her if I didn't. And so I knew a third of this curriculum, no problem, I'm going to ace it. So I took the course simply because I thought it would be an easy elective, not knowing that it was going to change my life. So while I'm in this course, and for the first time in my life, I'm allowed to ask questions about the religion, I'm allowed to critically analyze things. Um, while that's happening, simultaneously, 9-11 happens. And so I was bombarded both intellectually and emotionally. And by the time that year was up, it was, it was, it was like a sweater unraveling. Like it was very, it was, it was, it was very slow, but very quick. You know, as soon as I started to um, question it, it was just so obvious that this was not only um, untrue, but dangerous and there's a big, big difference between theoretically understanding you're supposed to kill the infidels and you're supposed to spread Islam. Like I knew that. Of course I knew that. I knew that from, you know, from the first time I was ever recited Quran. But it's so different than actually turning on the TV and watching people jump from buildings and knowing that you share the same identity as the people who did that and that you understand the ideology of why they did that. Um, it makes you feel responsible. And ISIS is doing the same thing in the Middle East. This is why Iraqis are leaving the religion in droves is because again, you talk about it in, in, you know, Friday khutbah, you hear about it, you recite it in the Quran when you're praying but to see it, to know that these Yazidi women are and girls are being taken as slaves in the same way that your prophet took slaves from Jewish tribes and, and killed 
the men and took the boys, you know, ripped down the, their pants and checked, does he have pubic hair? If he has pubic hair, then kill him. If he doesn't, then take him to raise him as a Muslim soldier. We know all these stories. We knew all these stories. But when you see it happen in real life, um, it's, it's a, it, it's, it's, uh, you can't, you can't justify it. You can't allow, you, you just, um, it hits you in a way that it just makes everything, it makes everything real and you understand the danger of, of what this religion can produce. Because it sounds like you're outlining an inherent disconnect between, I suppose, you're saying you grew up conservative Muslim from a conservative Muslim family and you had these teachings, you knew kill infidels, you knew that this is like, you were directly taught that like, Oh, by the way, little Yasmin, we need to kill the infidels. And you're like, yes, I understand. And I agree. Um, but then there's also this, like, it sounds like you're saying there's this level of where it's like, it's not really real. There's like a recitation to it or a non-reality until you're actually encountered with it. So a lot of people would grow up agreeing theoretically in conversations with other Muslims going, Oh yes, of course those bloody infidels go kill them or whatever, but no one's actually doing it. Yeah. Right. It's like, it's always told to us as like, look how the Muslims are so powerful, how they conquered these lands, blah, blah, blah. It's like history. It doesn't it doesn't feel, you don't think of it as real life or in in my time. Mm -hmm. And so, so what is what I suppose what does an upbringing look like and I guess your context growing up w- with these stories w- with this religion and being a woman oh. so that is a constant struggle and that's why I knew that's why I when I started my activism and I started to reach out, I went specifically to women first is because I knew how they are feeling. I know, I know that as a Muslim woman growing up and you are told the hadith about how men are more intelligent than women and more women will be in hell than men. And you are told that your husband can beat you. You are told that if your husband was covered in boils that are oozing pus and you licked him from head to toe, you still, you still do not, you are still not equal to him. You still have not matched how, you're still not worthy. You are told, you know, constantly that men are responsible for women, that men are in control of women. You are told all of these things. You are told about the man you are supposed to revere was 53 years old when he raped a nine-year-old girl. You are told to love that man and to, to, to honor him and to try to be like him. Every single girl, every single woman that is raised with all of these messages in her gut, she is sick about it, but she's forced to obey. She is forced to conform because of fear. 
She is forced because of fear. She's afraid of her father. She's afraid of her husband. She's afraid of the society around her. She's afraid of the community. She's afraid of burning in hell for eternity. Marital rape. There is no Muslim woman alive today that is not upset by the fact that she has no right to say no to her husband because she is his property. There's no way. Any human being that has to abide by all of these rules is sick in her stomach. And Ayan Hirsi Ali, when she was on the Joe Rogan show, explained it so perfectly. And she said that when we fight against these ideas, and this was my experience as well, because this is a very common experience. When we fight against those ideas, the elder women tell us, just stop fighting. The sooner you accept it, the happier you'll be. The definition of the word Islam is submission. And that is what you are encouraged to do. Just submit. Just stop. Just stop it. You're not going to fight against your society. You're not going to fight against... Your- Forget your father, forget your husband, forget your brother. You are never going to win against the almighty Allah that created the universe and everything in it. Do you think that if you got into that fight, do you think that you're ever going to win? Of course not. So just accept it. Just submit and accept that this is your life. And once you do that, you will find happiness. But as long as you keep fighting, you will continue to be angry, scared, upset, sad, depressed. So just stop it. And people like Ayan and I, we couldn't stop. But that's how, that's how humans respond to trauma, right? There's fight, flight, or freeze. Most women freeze. Most of them are frozen right now. Very, very few have the capacity to fight or to flee. Those are, that's very, very difficult to do. I cannot, I mean, women from Saudi Arabia write to me and they say, I would rather die than continue living this life. And it's not hyperbole and they do die, but they prefer it over the life that they're living. So that's what happens when you try to fight or when you try to flee, you get imprisoned, you get killed, you get all of these honor killings, thousands of girls and women being killed every year. That's what happens when you fight or when you flee. So the majority of them freeze. And, and that's your journey that you personally experienced all of that. Yeah. So I'm lucky that I was living in Canada where I had support. Once I was able to get away from him, get away from the man I was forced to marry, um, he was a terrorist. He is a terrorist. He's in prison in Egypt right now. He's a member of Al-Qaeda. So it was not easy, but I got away from him with my daughter. It was really because I had a daughter. If I didn't have my daughter and if I didn't want her to have a life that I never knew at her age and I was willing to risk my life in order to try to get that life for her, I absolutely was. Um, if I, 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 so I got away from him and then I got away from my family and then I'm living in a secular country that will support me. 
that will allow me to get student loans. That's why I was able to go to university and take that history of religions course. I never would have been able to do that if I was in Afghanistan or Pakistan or Sudan or Somalia or Saudi Arabia. These are not options for these women. They can get away from their family. They can get away from their husbands. And then what? And then they're stuck in a totalitarian society. So um, somebody like Ayan, so what happened with her, she grew up in Somalia. She was being forced into a marriage with a man in Canada, and she had a stopover in Germany. And she just didn't continue to Canada. She just got off in Europe, got off the plane, didn't, didn't get back on. So she was able to escape. So that's why my life and her life are, have different endings, is because we were in a, in a world, in a society that allowed us to be human beings, that allowed us to live independently. So it's not exactly, obviously, um, I, I have so much survivor's guilt. I, have so, I understand that I was really, really privileged to be born and raised in Canada. And that's why my organization, Free Hearts, Free Minds, supports people that are living in Muslim-majority countries. Because I think as difficult as it was for me to survive, I don't even, sometimes I think back and I'm like, I don't even know how, how I'm alive today. And that was in Canada. So imagine people in other countries, whether they're gay, whether they're women, whether from other religious minorities um, that are living in these totalitarian dictatorships. Um, so that's why all of my support is for them. My organization focuses specifically on people in Muslim majority countries. And also because if you're in the West, there are social support systems available for you. But if you're in a Muslim majority country, those systems are not available for you. And even if they were, you can't go to your therapist and be like, I don't believe in Allah anymore. <laughs> or I think I might be gay. No, these things will get you killed, right? So you have to keep this to yourself. And it forces people to live um, in the closet, like it forces them to live these double lives. And that's what my organization is there for, to support people who are in those situations and to just help them to deal with their religious trauma and to help them find the tools that they need in order to survive, thrive, um, in the situations that they're in. Yeah. You, you're describing just a, such a traumatic and difficult pathway out of a world like this. And you, you're saying that for you and a few others, the, the journey ends with at least some escape. But if you're not in a country like Canada or Europe or Australia, that journey of fight that you kept pushing back against that you're saying there is no way out. If you're in one of these countries, the way out is you'll probably end up dead and that's legal and that's allowed. Yes. So the, the punishment for leaving Islam is execution is a beheading. Mm. So, yeah. um, you're talking like now as well. You're, you're talking yes. happening in 2021. Yes, I am. And if the if the government doesn't do it, the vigilantes will do it. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the stories are endless, but like in Bangladesh, um, secular humanist authors at a book fair were hacked to death with, with machetes in the streets. It wasn't the government that did it. It was their fellow, you know, 
people. Uh, in Pakistan, a, a man named Mashal Khan, a young boy named Mashal Khan was in university and he was a Marxist. So he was, you know, talking about those ideas, which are against Islam. In the quad of his university, he was completely swarmed by his peers, his university peers. I mean, he lived on the university dorm. These were not people that he just saw, you know, a few hours a day. These are people that lived with him. They beat him to death while the campus security pushed away anybody that tried to help him. And when his mother was going to view his body, she said, I picked up his hand to kiss his hand and every bone in his finger, every bone in his hand was broken. That's, that's what we're talking about. So even if you can escape in Jordan, a cartoonist was on the steps of the courthouse because he was getting in trouble because he made a cartoon that depicted Muhammad or Allah or whatever, something they disagreed with, shot on the steps of the courthouse. And when these things happen, there is an eruption of support. There is an eruption of support for the terrorist, for the killer. Um, I, I could just go on and on and on, but there are, are so many stories like that. So yeah, it's very dangerous to share your feelings, your ideas, your thoughts. Which means for you then now, doing the work you do, saying what you say, because I, I, I guess as me in a, being Australian, even if people are listening and disagree or, or whatever it is, they're like, oh, I just disagree and that's totally fine. What, I guess what's, what's it like for you then now sticking up for feminist rights for those who are not in countries like Canada or Australia? So that's exactly, that's when I first started writing my book, I was anonymous and I, I was scared, of course. Um, I've known about people, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with honor killings. I, my mother threatened to kill me herself. I'm familiar, everybody knows Salman Rushdie. Everybody knows uh, Theo Van Gogh. You know, he made a movie with Ion Hercielli, was killed in the streets of Holland. The stories are endless. I know that coming out as a public, you know, showing your face and publicly speaking out against the religion of Islam, I know that that's taking, um, that that's a risk. That's taking a very big risk. <clears throat> but what happened was that I was almost compelled to do this. I was almost pushed to do this it wasn't a choice, but I was being inundated with messages from people all over the world telling me their stories. And basically they shamed me into it because they're saying like, we're so glad you're in Canada and you're safe and you can speak for us. You can be the voice for the voiceless. I still get messages like this from countries that are considered progressive, like Egypt even. Um, thank you for speaking up on our behalf. And so I'm compelled to do it. I have to do this because I'm privileged to do this. 
And to be honest, it helps me with my survivor's guilt because I feel like I did survive by the skin of my teeth. I know that. And I know that there are so many countless other people that were not able to survive or are not able to survive, are not able to escape. And so I have to do this. I know that it's a risk for more, I know it's a risk for my family, which is the part that makes it, um, that gives me most pause, especially with my daughter whose father is in prison. Um, I was very scared that he would have, you know, his Al Qaeda buddies or whatever, um, find me and then find her through my public work. And that's why she doesn't live with me anymore. <laughs> she is 24. Um, but I wouldn't go out. I wouldn't show my face and I wouldn't be public, even though I'm using a pseudonym. I wouldn't do that until she moved out, started going to university, moved out with her boyfriend and her two cats, living such a happy life. <laughs> you know, then I'm like, okay, I'll do this because she's safe. And I, and because of the possessiveness of these men and the way they think and me understanding that culture, it, it would, he would be more interested in getting her back because she's his. Um, he wouldn't care about my other daughter and he wouldn't care about my husband necessarily. He'd want me dead, of course, but about his daughter, you know, that's what I was afraid of. But, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I have to keep going. And my daughter is more than understanding and supportive and safe. Um, but I have to keep going because that's how they control us. They control us with fear. Yusuf Qaradawi, who was one of the leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood, he said it himself. He said, if we did not have the law of execution of apostates, then we would not have any more Muslims. There would be no more Muslims. They fucking know it. They know that they are keeping all of these people hostage through fear. And they're happy about it. They're happy that they have a way to control people. It, it sounds like, and, and your, your book, outlines your journey and your or like very narrow pathway of escaping a culture and a family and a religion that for all intents and purposes is designed to keep you subjugated and, and within it. And the pathway was there, but still narrow in Canada. And as I was reading your book, um, and it brings us to the clickbait in that as much as you, you're crediting countries like like progressive countries like Canada and Australia that have some legal structures that uh, allow you, you know, you can get, especially in Canada, in America, it's probably a different story because student loans are more expensive, but at least in Canada and Australia, we have some systems where if you want to, if you want to go to uni, you actually can um, without having heaps of money off the bat. Um, but it, it also, there's also like outlined points in your story where, these progressive societies failed you 
And I suppose that brings us to that clickbait where you're saying the liberals empower radical Islam, even though it was by these institutions that you managed to have a narrow pathway to escape. Bring me to those those failures, uh, I suppose, that you're kind of pointing at and that's what you're critiquing. It doesn't sound like you've got this wholesale criti- criticism of liberal societies in general. It sounds like you, you're giving a very specific not. critique based on your experience that's, that's saying, I think we need to do more. Well, I think we need to live by our actual values. You know, like there's... There's a... Conf- so I obviously... I, I, I believe in democracy, liberalism, enlightenment. I believe these are the best ideas, the best values, the best worldviews that we have available to us today, okay? But I believe that we are making some very dangerous mistakes as people who believe in these values, So if I take my example of when I was 12 years old, and this is something you'll relate to in Australia, because I have a lot of people from Australia writing to me telling me that they've had similar situations. When I was 12 years old, one of my teachers, Mr. Fabro, who wrote the foreword to my book, came to me and asked me if I was okay, because he could tell that I was depressed. And I went on to share with him the abuse that was going on at home. And he alerted the police and the police alerted social services and it became this huge investigation and it went to court and the judge said, that's your culture. Sorry, uh, I can't protect you because that's your culture. So what I heard was you are not equal to other Canadian girls. If you were coming, if your family was from France or Germany, I would protect you. But your family's from Egypt, so you're fucked. Sorry. So that is an example of how this cultural relativism that comes from a place of trying to be inclusive and trying to be supportive and trying to be, you know, (sighs) diversity is our strength and all that stuff, how that can become insidious. So by doing that, by, the, by him saying, that's none of my business, that's your culture, he's throwing me under the bus. And that's the same kind of thing that happens to girls who are victims of FGM, female genital mutilation. Commonly happens, America, Canada, the UK. What happens to their parents when they do this? What is the deterrent? They have to, they get given a pamphlet that says, hey, don't cut your daughter's clitoris off. That's not a good idea. If that was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed British person that took a razor to their daughter's clitoris, I can guarantee you that person would be getting more than a pamphlet. But because they're Somali or because they're Egyptian, let's give them a pamphlet. So that's my problem. My problem is we are not treating people equally. We have different laws for different people based on their culture or their ethnicity or their religion. And that is unacceptable. There should be one law for all. Believe whatever you want to believe. Pray to whoever you want to pray to. But when it comes to the laws, you are all going to be treated the same. This is the stop sign right here. This is the boundary. 
once you cross it, then we have a problem, right? We got all, this. These kinds of things happen all the time. In the UK, you had they had the issue with um, no outsiders. So it was a curriculum that was shared with all of the public schools that taught that if you are Muslim, if you're Jewish, if you're Christian, if you're gay, if you're, you know, it doesn't matter what you are, we are all British and nobody is going to be an outsider. We are all the same. And then you had Muslim parents outside of the schools chanting, being gay is not okay, throwing eggs at the parents that are trying to put up rainbow flags. Like this is, this is the, this is the crossroads right here. You need to decide, are you going to support people's religious beliefs, even if those religious beliefs include being homophobic, being anti-Semitic, being misogynist? Where, where is your line? So that's the problem with these liberals, is they don't have a line. They ha- they're like, everybody's allowed to to do anything that they want. Everybody can believe anything that they want. Well, that sounds nice in theory, but in reality, some people want to kill you. Some people believe that, you know, Jews are apes and pigs and that the world needs to be rid of all Jewish people and that the trees and the rocks When the Muslims are fighting the last Jews, the trees and the rocks will say, oh, Muslim, there is a Jew hiding behind me. Come kill him. That's how important it is. Not just the people on earth, but the the earth itself wants to rid itself of Jews. So if you're going to support people, if you're going to support an ideology, where is your boundary? At what point do you say, oh, except for not that? Because it sounds like you're touching on whole, a whole bunch of different ideas. Let me see if I can pull out a few of them. It's Western society, especially let's take Australia. Canada is probably very simple. Prides itself on multiculturalism. Uh, inclusion, we're a diverse society. Um, and also pride ourselves on religious freedom. And it sounds like these these ideas you're saying the end result is racism because you're saying when a judge looked at you and with all the evidence of abuses of all kinds of nature of you as a little young girl growing up and you were looking to get out of that that judge looked at you and went that's your culture it's a different set of rules and you're saying that if i was standing in front of that judge i would be out of that situation pretty quickly. And so it sounds like the, the push for tolerance, inclusion, um, acceptance, and the prioritization of some level of religious freedom culminates in an inequality that you're pulling out when it comes to application of very obvious principles like no abuse, no genital mutilation, no um, sexual assault, no oppression, no beatings, no like in Australia, it's not okay for anyone to beat their wife, no matter what. But what you're outlining is that in the legal system, from your experience, you've encountered that it occurs and it occurs regularly. And the people who do that under the name of uh, a religion or what you're saying is mistaken as a culture is allowed Mm. to kind of 
go on. And that that's what I suppose is the critique of being, people would, would call it like the, the woke liberal is, is I suppose where you're saying too much inclusion, you've included things that are fundamentally anti a liberal society, which prioritizes human rights. Does that sound? You are so good roughly... at summarizing things. Oh, that was good. a perfect synopsis. And okay. Richard Dawkins has a, a quote where he says, liberals are so open-minded that their brains fall out. And that's what and you're so saying. That's just things happening. A perfect, that's, that's what we're talking about here. So, because I suppose that that's what that's why I brought up before the stereotype of the right wing political voices that really um, are drawn to your story and your idea. And as I was just kind of going through, you know, the the podcast you pop up on and the stories, it. It was interesting as I went, oh, who's this, who's this group, who's this group? They would identify, identify as like politically conservative. And I guess one question would be, as we untangle these, these ideas, the progressive person, the person who might be woke or progressive or wanting to be as inclusive as possible, they might be looking at that going, we as a modern Western society are trying to move away from colonialism that says colonialism in the sense of our way is better than yours we have the answers you don't we're going to come to your country we're going to demolish your institutions your culture we're going to set up a democratic western liberal society just like us because we're the best and it sounds like that's what we're really pushing against we're going okay we don't want to be we don't want to colonialize people we don't want to uh destroy their culture and we don't want to um say that our culture is better how do you what would you say to the idea that people are saying these ideas that you're saying, you know, liberalism, enlightenment, um, these principles that Western civilization is built on, they might say that's colonialism. And are you advocating for colonialism to essentially say we do have it better? And is that, that's kind of, that fits the conservative narrative quite well because the conservative side, and they're not afraid to say, yeah, we Western people, we have the best civilizations, copy us. There's a very big difference between saying, I live in a Western society. These are my ideas. I believe in these values. I agree with these values. I value these values. There's a very big difference between saying that and saying, and now I'm going to make you abide by my values and my rules. Nobody is saying that. All I'm saying is, if your values are equality of women, equality of LGBT, whatever your values are, then maintain your consistency within your own borders, okay? So at least do it within your own country, maybe. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying that we need to be going and like bombing other countries and forcing them to be Democrats. <laughs> of course not. My point is that... There are people that are living in these societies that are, that are being oppressed by the rules that you are upholding. Do you see what I'm saying? Like when you say that's your culture and that's none of my business and I'm not going to talk about it, well, you have now 
left victims that are being oppressed under that rule. As you turn your blind eye and say, none of my business, you want to perform FGM, you want to force your daughter into hijab, you want to beat your wife, that's your culture, that's none of my business. Well, now you're a coward. Now, not only are you a coward, but you are breaking your own laws. That's what I'm, that's, that's what I'm trying to say. And the reason why, the reason why you'll find me going on Dave Rubin is because he invited me, (laughs) right? I've also been on CNN. I've also been on BBC. I've also been on New York times. I've also been on fucking Al Jazeera for goodness sake. Okay. But I will go wherever anybody invites me and nobody cares and nobody talks about it. But as soon as I go on what is considered the right wing, then people are like, oh, no, 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 she's right wing. You know what? I'm not American. You've encountered those um, stereotypes. All the time. It's narcissism. It's narcissism. People are like, oh, you're pro-Trump. I could give less of a fuck about Trump. I'm not American. It doesn't matter to me, but they only see things from their point of view. So this is what it comes down to. Iran and Saudi Arabia are both Sharia law countries. Both of them subjugate women to a dehumanizing, disgusting, deplorable degree. Okay. Americans will, Americans that hate Trump will hate Saudi Arabia because Trump is allied with Saudi. However, Trump doesn't like Iran. Therefore, progressive Americans will support Iran. That's what I'm ta- that's the narcissism. That's the narcissism. I support women from those countries. I don't care about your politics. I don't care about your right-wing left-wing. I don't care about your Trump. I don't care about your Biden. None of that has anything to do with me. I care about these human women and they are so narcissistic, navel gazing. They cannot expand their minds past their nose. That's all they care about is, is their own narrow minded worldview. It, I think it's interesting that the issues you're talking about, because on some level there's this non-controversial, um, point that you're making you have your story outlined in your book and when if people go and read your story that they'll see the trajectory you've come on and and how you ended up where you are but what's interesting about the issues you talk about and the what i've kind of brought up there is that it it's very hard to walk that line between what are already very well established political boxes of liberal conservative and every issue pulls you into the polarized camp of if you, if you're on this show, you're conservative. If you're on this show, you're liberal. If you're talking about um, how Muslims need to do certain things within Canada and probably should be subjugated to strict Canadian law when it comes to women's rights, then you're, oh, well, you're, you're this political candidate. But if you're talking about something else, it's, it seems like it's very difficult to talk about these topics without ending up in a heated divisive polarized debate that ends up in the conversation of pro-Trump, anti-Trump, conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat. Um, and it, sa- it sounds like that's 
that's been your experience as you've it sounds like the non-controversial thing you're saying is religion at least specifically within canada countries like australia countries like america religious freedom ends where human rights begin that sounds like your main thesis and your main point which doesn't sound too terribly controversial but it always seems to end in some political argument yeah, I mean, they when if I bring it from a Christian perspective, they'll totally understand where that line is. They totally see it. But when I bring it from a Muslim perspective, then again, they've got a blind spot. They can't Why see it. Why do you it. think and that it's is? Because, because they do not view Christian human beings and Muslim human beings as the same. They don't. Interesting. And this is why I'm saying it ends up becoming racist at the end. Because they really do have a bigotry of low expectations. They really do think that Christians should be better. They should know better. They should understand. But they don't have that same expectation for Muslims. In the quest for equality, so someone, and I'm, I'm sure you've, you've had this leveled out, someone would call you racist for some of the ideas you're talking about now. But it sounds like, and people, if you critique Islam, it sounds like there's this fear of critiquing Muslims, Islamic countries, because um, because you might be called racist. But it sounds like what what, what you're saying is that the in the inability to hold people of all religions to the same standard, or from people from different countries, the inability to hold them to the same standards. It's as if the judge goes, ah, you know, they're from Egypt. You know, they're not really on the same status, class, importance, yes. understanding level. Their culture is lesser developed, but it's it's really not said. It doesn't. It sounds like you're talking about something very implicit that perhaps no one would admit to that. Because because it sounds like everyone who might be who might push against what you're saying, they're probably going, no, I'm trying to not be racist. I'm trying to be not colonial. I'm trying to be as inclusive as possible. But you're, it's kind of just saying the same thing back going, no, no, that's, there's implicit racism there. You've now become counterproductive. You're now have become the thing that you say that you've, you're look, you've looked into the abyss and you have become the darkness is what happens. And I, and I have seen these arguments online before. Like there is this Dr. Craig, whatever, I don't know. He's some TV personality. I don't even know if he's in the UK or America, but he was talking about, he says, when a Nigerian man marries a 12-year-old girl, is that considered rape in their cultural context or it's different for them? That's what I'm talking about. Because to me, he sounds like some sort of psychopathic supremacist who thinks that only Western people understand that raping children is bad. <laughs> those, those little savages in Nigeria, uh, they don't understand. It is not rape in their context. That's what I'm talking about. That bigotry of low expectations is so insidious, is so insulting, is so condescending, is so patronizing, it drives me up the fucking wall. And you see it all the time. You see it all the time. With Charlie Hebdo in France, when, when all of those people were murdered for cartoons, what did people say? Well, 
they shouldn't have poked the bear. They shouldn't have posted pictures of Muhammad because you just know how those Muslims are going to react. What? <laughs> like, what, what, what is, so your definition of Muslim is, is, is a savage murderer? Like the, this is the expectation? You know, one of my friends from Iraq, Faisal Mutad, who has an organization called Ideas Beyond Borders, really great organization where he um, translates books of like Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, et cetera. He was talking about how insulting it is when they say things like, oh, you know, people join ISIS because they needed the money or because they were mad at America or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like, why are you making excuses for people joining a genocidal cult? Like it's, it's not, uh, it's not this tap, tap on the head. Oh, but we must understand that doesn't happen both ways. That never happens when the culprit is American or Israeli, then they somehow have a completely different view and understanding of human nature. I want to go to religion now and Islam specifically. Um, and you, and you bring up Dawkins there and the thing, so previously on this show, we've, we've had a lot of, uh, progressive deconstructed Christians and gone through ideas. That's, that's my background. So that's like my wheelhouse. I'm very outside my wheelhouse. So I'm going to draw some parallels and you can let me know where they work, where they, where they don't work as far as, um, Islam goes. Now, the biggest critique many friends of the show would have with someone like Dawkins is that he paints Christianity as a monolith. And he comes to Christianity with, he accepts the fundamentalist definition of Christianity and says, that's true Christianity, and then rails against it. And most Christians would, well, at least most Christians in my circles would say, we agree with you, mate, but it's, it's very nuanced. It's very complicated. You've accepted the fundamentalist definition as Christianity as a monolith, but it's actually very, there's lots of different nuanced interpretations and all of these things. And we don't agree with your assertion that that's Christianity. We actually believe that this is Christianity. So there's, there's the difference there. So when it comes to Islam and, and, and the people that, um, uh, that murdered the Charlie Hebdo cartoonists, some people might say, well, that's extremist Islam. These are extremists. This is a particular um, interpretation of Islam, a particular reading of the scriptures, a particular sect. H how does, how do you pull out, is, is Islam this monolith that people might be thinking you're painting it as being like, Islam is all of these things, or are there some different interpretations, some different arms of Islam that you're not critiquing right now? Are there different, because at least in Christianity, there's 33,000 different Christian denominations, Catholic, Protestant, just to name the two big splits. Um, so I guess for my ignorance and for maybe friends of the show that are really just kind of starting to explore these ideas, explain, I guess, the, the difference as you might see it comparing Christianity and Islam. So it's the same as what I said before. So you've got the religion mm -hmm. and then you have the people. So one is a set of ideas and the other is human beings. The set of ideas are there. Human beings don't all choose to follow those sets of ideas. And in fact, 
when we want to talk about minority groups, that's very true with Christians, a small minority. Again, when I talk about the Westboro Baptist Church, who are a group that uh, follow, you know, the, the Old Testament to the letter, they're a family. <laughs> they are one family. They are like 80 to 100 people. So Even probably less now, <laughs> probably less now. So they are legitimately a minority group. Okay, so they will do hateful things. They will find the rationale for why they're doing those hateful things in these books. Okay, so the same thing is true for Muslims and Islam. The books are there. The rationale for doing these hateful things are all there. So the potential for this set of books to breed, it's, it's like a recipe book. If you're following the recipe and you end up baking a terrorist, <laughs> that's what the recipe called for. You know what I mean? If you're following a map and you end up in terroristville, it's because the map led you there. So people that follow the religion. Is that where the map is leading or is that where a certain interpretation or a certain, so, so as I draw the the potential is there, Conrad, the potential is there. Even if there are human beings that choose to not see it in that context and who choose to interpret it differently, that's fantastic. But we can't pretend that the potential isn't there in this book to say this. Now there is one big, big difference between the, the, between Christianity and Islam that I have to clarify here. You see your religious books as metaphors, stories, Progressives parables. would, yes, definitely. Yeah. The Quran is the literal word of Allah. It is the literal word of Allah. When he says, if you fear disobedience or arrogance from your wives, beat them. That's not a story. That's not a that's not a metaphor. That is an a, a, an edict, right? These are these are things that are if somebody steals, cut off their right hand. These are very clear um, expectations or or very clear sanctions. These are there's. Uh, there's that quote that every the ayah that everybody likes to quote all the time. If uh, if you kill one man, it is like you killed all of humanity. True. And then read the next verse. And the next verse says, except if that person defies Allah, then you cut off the arm of one of their arms and one of their legs on opposite sides. <laughs> it's very, very specific. It's very, very clear. Literal word of Allah. These are not, you can't, you can sit around a room and try to talk about, well, we'll interpret it in this way. We'll interpret it in that way. Well, good luck to you, first of all. And if you want to interpret it in a way that you are not going to follow these vicious edicts, fantastic. I support you in that. That's great. But we cannot pretend that they are not written in that book and that the potential will always be there for people to read it verbatim as what is written there. Because it sounds like the the same literalism leads many, let's say, uh, literalistic reinterpretation of the Bible leads a lot of um, 
conservative American evangelicals to believe Trump is the is the savior of of and like he's he's the man, um, and it, it leads them to not want to bake cakes for people who are gay, and it leads them to some some similar things. Is that literal? It's in there, and then you go to a lot of progressive scholars, some of whom we've who we've had on the show that go, well, when you put it in context, that meant this. This is a metaphor for this. This comes through in the time this meant then. Technically, there was no term of homosexuality back then so paul wouldn't have been talking about that and you, you get you get into the historical analysis of it all but it's this great. it's this modern literalism where we take our lens and go and it's a modern idea to believe that the writers back then wrote this book to be literal uh, and we go well of course we take everything literally literally now so it would have been genesis literal then is there anyone is there are there any imams that that seem to process the Quran in a similar way, or is it? Is that just n- not done? Uh, might it be an is obvious done. Question or not, so but, let's yeah. take, for example, the Imam in France. He's Tunisian, mm-hmm. um, and he started. All he said was that we shouldn't hate Jews and want to kill Jews. And he was. He's now living in a safe house, him and his family, and he was just inundated with thousands of, of death threats. Mm-hmm. So that's what happens when somebody tries to speak out. That's the difference. There's such a difference between mm-hmm. the yes, Christian please, contents and the Please Islamic explain contents. all of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very outside my wheelhouse. It, 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 it's like, what, where, is, where is there a Christian theocracy right now? Where, where is it that children are being raised from their first day of school where they are studying the literal interpretations of the Bible. They, these, there is no comparison. This doesn't exist. There are no countries that follow laws from the Old Testament in their actual current 2021 laws. Like this is, we're talking about 50 Muslim majority countries that have these literalist interpretations of the Quran in the curriculum of the schools, in the government of the lands, the, the, this when you talk about um, interpreting things differently and seeing things from a secular lens or or whatever, all that kind of stuff, like that's so limited. This, there's no there's no space for that. That can happen in the UK. It can happen in Australia. It can happen in Canada. It can happen in France. But that can't happen in countries. I mean, it can barely happen in the West, let's be honest. It can barely happen. People like Majid Nawaz, he's still getting beat up in the streets, a Muslim, but because he disagrees with the extremist interpretations of the religion. So it's not the same as you guys. You guys have it the opposite. Your vast majority of your 30,000 sects are, are not following the Old Testament literally. But with Muslims, the default is to follow the Quran literally because it is the word of Allah. It is the literal word of Allah. That's the, and then very, very few people, and those people are considered infidels, heretics, should be killed, kuffar, non-believers, very few people, very few Muslim people, very incredibly brave Muslim people speak out against following this religion literally. And those people need to fear for their lives. 
Mm. You're, you're talking about almost the, the literalistic readings of the Quran and fundamentalist Islam on some level needs to be reformed so that there's room for human rights, which is what you're talking about. But it also sounds like you're saying this can't be done as easily because it's so high risk. And I suppose Christianity at some point during history killed a lot of people who disagreed and it, and we, and Christianity looks different today, potentially for going through that. I'm not a historian. I'm just kind of winging it here, but it sounds like you're saying if an imam is to do that and stand up and say, yeah, the Quran says this, but let's put that into context, guys. Let they were at war. This is this. Let's let's move this text. I suppose a reformation of sorts, but mm-hmm. that imam would be at very high risk of his life, even in a country like Australia or America. Is that yes? But it's still happening. I'm not yeah. saying I'm not saying it shouldn't happen. I'm not saying uh, I think it's a waste of time that people are doing that. I say I support those people. In fact, that's what I do with the Ion Hersieli Foundation is we have a coalition of Muslims, non-Muslims, Jews, Christians, um, everybody who we all have the same shared goal of separation of mosque and state, of secularism, of fighting Islamism, which is the political um, ideology, which is an, an arm of Islam. Um it 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 is very possible and i i know a lot of people feel like um they don't see it happening you don't see these things happen you're not going to see a big huge influx of people suddenly saying oh we're not going to interpret the quran as the as the literal word of allah you're not going to see that suddenly it's going to be a very very slow quiet subversive boil because it's so dangerous to say it out loud. I've seen on television in Kuwait, people saying this, like on the national airwaves. Um, there is even a Pakistani man who, of course he's fear for his life, but he was saying that we should not, um, we should not follow the Quran literally. We should view it as the words of men, not the words of Allah. And these are major, major things. There is seeming to be at least that parallel because progressive Christians would say it isn't the, the Bible isn't the literal word of God. It's, you know, people journeying to an understanding of God. It sounds like that same step almost in that text to loosen it from this. So when it comes to you looking, you're okay with the reformation of Islam and, and you're kind of rooting for it, even though you yourself would say you're an atheist and have kind of, of course, done away with it completely. Because those reformers no longer want to kill me. <laughs> they no longer want to kill you. They no longer want to kill gay people. They believe in women's equality. They believe in freedom of thought. Of course I support them. Yeah. Yeah. Can... Can everything be reformed? Do you think some things are, be, are beyond reformation, like like the hijab? Can that be reclaimed as a feminist icon to no. for Islamic women to, to wear? It? No, no, it's never. You cannot ever make the hijab feminist. That's impossible. That's never going to happen. Not? What you can say because it's inherently a tool of misogyny. The whole purpose of the hijab, the whole idea behind it, the whole 
it's gender segregation first and foremost. As soon as you say women must wear this and men don't wear it, then you're already you've already lost me. You've already created an inequality between the sexes right there. Um, but then especially when you say women need to wear this in order to protect themselves from men who might rape them. Now that's victim blaming, especially when you say um, women who wear hijab are good and pure and clean. And those are the ones that you want you to marry your sons to, not those dirty, filthy whores that are not covering their hair. So now we're into slut shaming. So all of the, the whole purpose, this is why I have a hashtag hijab is rape culture and it, it is purely rape culture. So you cannot make that feminist ever. But what you can do is you can say, you have the choice. You choose truly, not just lip service, but women truly have the choice to wear it or not wear it depending on their own beliefs or decisions. So it, as long as there are no there's no coercion. Like in Iran, a girl can't go to school unless she's wearing hijab. So you want to be educated, you need to wear hijab. Um, women are, in, there's a 24-year-old girl that got a 20-year sentence for refusing to wear hijab in Iran. So as long as there are not those coercive controls over women and they're allowed to truly choose or not choose if they want to wear it, then I'm fine with it. But as long as women are being killed, as long as women are being attacked with acid, as long as women are being abused, then I will fight against it. Mm -hmm. And where does the government's role, let's in, in this example, where does the government's role begin and end? Because in Australia, we, ha like, we have uh, certain politicians, which many might deem as racist, uh, pushing for a ban, a, a government ban of the hijab. Is that? Do you see that the government playing a useful role in in if you're saying a, a, a democracy like Australia should take the rights of women seriously and therefore should step into that space of banning the hijab, or do you see that potentially like maybe some people might see that as a overreach that ultimately segregates and isolates a certain portion of the population that us still either being compelled to or having making the choice to wear it how do you see that because that's where the political line comes down you know, people say yeah ban yeah. it like ban the bikini all that sort of stuff i guess where do you sit on that very nuanced political real like implication of some of these ideas so banning it i do believe has crossed the line so now you're becoming authoritarian now you're becoming totalitarian now you're telling people what to wear what not to wear but how about we not support it how about we not celebrate it? How about we not put it on every flat surface, on every billboard, on every magazine, every channel? How about we not do that? So I'm not saying that we need to ban it. I definitely disagree with banning it. And I also definitely disagree with celebrating it or as if it is just a normal piece of cultural clothing, as if it is a benign piece of clothing, because both both of those things are wrong so final couple of questions thanks for taking taking so much time to really spell out things that are well outside my wheelhouse here islam at its best what would you say oh, so are you asking me to describe for you i haven't seen it yet 
Okay. So, um, yes. nothing redeemable about Islam in your experience. I haven't seen Islam at its best yet. Perhaps that might happen in the future. Um, with, with these reformers doing their best work. Um, I can tell you Muslims at their best, but I cannot tell you Islam at its best. Um, right now I haven't seen it. How, how do you view maybe some feminists who remain Muslim and choose to wear the hijab and adhere to that strict culture? How, how do you view them? That's their business. You know, people choose all sorts of different things. People choose to uh, tattoo a swastika on their face. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like people, people are free to do whatever they want to do. They're free to abide by whatever beliefs they want to abide by. Um, I'm free to judge them. I'm free to feel a certain way about the decisions that they've made. Um, but I wouldn't... I wouldn't try to control the decisions that they make. I would just say that in a free society, we are, we're all just going to share our opinions on these actions. And, you know, that should always be free. That should, that should never be controlled. So this is what I'm referring to now are things like, people yelling bigot or Islamophobe or whatever, if you're going to speak out against what I view as misogynist, negative, homophobic, anti-Semitic things, if they're connected to Islam, you shouldn't talk about them because that makes you a bigot. Um, I can talk about anti-Semitism with white supremacists, but I can't talk about anti-Semitism with Muslims. Well, now we have a problem. So that it, it, if people want to consider themselves feminists um, and wear hijab, if people want to denounce feminism entirely, I see this a lot these days where people, women stand up and they say, I'm not a feminist. That's her business too. Um, I'm not here to police how people define themselves or, or what their beliefs are. Mm -hmm. how, how do you think they see you? Well, it depends. So Muslims in the Muslim majority world um, who are fighting the same fight that I'm fighting, Muslim women, see me as their ally and are grateful for my support. There's a very big difference between living in a, in a free democratic nation that will allow you to do whatever you want and to live however you want and you choose to wear the hijab you are, you know, universes away from the experience of a person born in a totalitarian regime that forces them to wear a hijab. Now, you might look at both of those women and see them both in hijab and not recognize the difference because physically, visually, they look the same, but they are coming from two completely different contexts. Just this morning, I... Um, retweeted a tweet where somebody had written, I have so many grown ass Arab female friends who have to wear the hijab, even though they're atheists. And it makes me so sad. That's a, a reality. You have to put it on and pretend 
for the sake of your life. So to have somebody speaking out, um, whether they're Muslim or non-Muslim, but if it's somebody who is fighting against this hijab, one of the issues that I fight against, it just seems that this one is so loaded because, well, for two reasons. First of all, because Islam is such a patriarchal religion, it's made for men by men, they just cannot handle, they cannot handle a woman claiming her own body even and saying, I'm not going to wear what you're telling me to wear. It's just, they can't handle it. They feel like they've been castrated. So they hate to see a woman have power even over her own body. And it's also such a big issue because it's being celebrated and supported in the States. And so that is something that causes the feminists in the Muslim majority world to feel so betrayed, so demoralized, where they're fighting their societies so hard where you have women in Saudi Arabia posting pictures of the niqab under their feet, posting pictures of themselves burning niqabs. And then you have politicians in Canada talking about supporting the niqab. So that's the burqa, the covering the face. So, um, so yeah, it depends. It's just like any other issue. There's pro-choice and pro-life. You know, <laughs> if I'm, if you are somebody who speaks up, who, who, who thinks that the hijab is a problematic thing, then you will be supporting what I'm saying. And if you think that it's a religious requirement and all women should wear it, otherwise they're whores that will burn in hell for eternity, then you're not going to like what I have to say. As we wrap up, is there anything you might want to add to just kind of sum up? We've covered a lot of ground. And uh, if people want to get more detail on, on your journey and your experience with that, I'd probably encourage them to read the book. As I have promised all my listeners, if it's an audiobook, I'll read it. And I have read it. So I, I'd probably say it's uh, like heartbreaking, Yasmin, that like your journey um, made me tear up multiple times. Just imagining a reality that, that seems so close to home in Canada, but then so different. Is there anything you might want to, I suppose, add uh, or sum up with? Um, I'll sum up by saying, don't forget that there's always minorities within the minorities. So um, my organization, Free Hearts, Free Minds, I'd love it if people could go to that website, freeheartsfreeminds.com, and click on testimonials. And you'll read the stories of the people that we were able to help. So, you know, when you think of um, Muslims or when you think of a Muslim-majority country, you have a certain impression in your head of what those people look like, what those people act like, what those people sound like. Um, that's not the whole truth. That's just the majority. But there is a minority within there and they are fighting and they are screaming and they are suffering and they need your support. They need people who share their values to tell them you're not crazy. I also agree with you. I also think that men and women are equal. <laughs> I also think that gay people shouldn't be killed. I also think that you are valid and you are worthy and you are a good person and that you are a moral person, even if you don't follow a um, religion. So, you know, it, it's just the internet 
Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, all of these social media sites have been immensely helpful in letting people in these closed societies know that they're not alone. So I would encourage your listeners to be their cheerleaders, to be their supporters, because these are people that are getting nothing but closed doors and hate. Um, And so to get support, even if it's just from an anonymous person from the other side of the world, it can be life-changing, if not life-saving. Where can people follow you and keep up with your work, find your book and everything like that? Uh, So you can go to my website, yasminmohammed.com. And um, I'm on Twitter as Yasmin Muhammad, Facebook and Instagram. And my book is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere where you can um, purchase a, a book. Um, it is self-published. So therefore, I don't have a publisher. I don't have a marketing team. I don't have anything. It's just me and my husband. <laughs> So um, it is not, you're not going to find a physical book in a physical bookstore, but if you go to a bookstore and you request it, they will bring it in for you. Um, And yeah, I'll just ask your listeners to please leave a review on Goodreads or on Amazon, regardless of how they felt about it, but please leave a review because that's the only way that I can... um, get the word out about this because like I said, I don't have a publisher or a agent or anything. Mm. Yasmin, thanks for taking so much time to kind of follow, follow the rabbit hole where, wherever it kinds of lays. It's been amazing talking to you. Thanks so much. It was an absolute pleasure, Conrad. And I say this like without an ounce of hyperbole, honestly, this was the most fun conversation I've ever had. And if you Google me, you'll see that there have been plenty. <laughs> Take that, Dave Rubin. <laughs> yeah, this was really, really fun. You asked some really great questions. And uh, yeah, even though it got really controversial, it was it just remained fun. It remained, you know, it keeps you, as long as you're thinking and as long as you're, that's, that to me is fun, right? Critically analyzing things from all sorts of perspectives. It wasn't just that binary of the left and right and blah, blah, blah. It's just so boring it's so unrealistic. We do not live in a Disney movie. The bad guys don't wear black hats and the good guys have white hats. I find it so simplistic, so childish. Um, and you are such a breath of fresh air that you stepped outside of that binary so easily and that we could have a real nuanced conversation. So it was an absolute pleasure. Wow. Well, with a with a rap like that, I'll, I, will, I will take that compliment straight to the bank. Uh, if... If you think I missed a question, clearly Yasmin doesn't think I did. I must have asked some decent questions. But if you think I missed a question, uh, send it through Instagram. Post on this clip. What did I, what did I miss? I, there's many places I could have gone. I was like at the end there trying fighting my urges to go, oh, bring up Islamophobia. But I'm like, no, no, no. Got to like, finish this thing. Uh, head over to Instagram. Post your thoughts. Send me a question there. And if you made it to the end of this episode, you disagree with the whole thing and it triggered you big time, you, my friend, are the spirit of Ideas Digest. That's the point. If you make it to the end of an episode, you disagree with the whole thing, send me a DM saying, hey, Conrad, I made it to the end. Boy, that was difficult. And I will send you 
a gold emoji. They're limited edition. You can cash it in anywhere where they take gold emojis. You've earned it. So send me that message. Love to hear from you. If you have any show ideas, any guests I should talk to, ideasdigest at gmail.com. Direct me down this rabbit hole of which I'm very out of my depth, but we're going anyway. Why should we be afraid of exploring ideas? I am not. Let us continue. Thanks for tuning in and I will catch you in the next episode.